Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you, people, it's uh, it's Christmas time. And the lovely Joanne's moved out, and I'm uh, I'm feeling good about it. But I was watching specials the other night. I watched uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is I, mean, I just turned 50, so it's I've been watching that show forever. And as I was watching it, I was watching the little girl, like her Sally, the doll. She's on the Island of Misfit Toys. Which, first of all, I'm as a kid would have rather have the misfit toys like i'd rather have a charlie in a box than a jack in a box it just seems a lot cooler but what i noticed was i really cannot find anything wrong with her as i was sitting there i looked i looked and she was missing a nose but i thought that you know that's that's nothing it's nothing big you know it's not the thing and then, then i went i googled it because we can, we can google everything that's that's what's great about society we can google all this stuff and i turned around and i googled it and it said she had psychological problems that's why she was in the misfit toys now I don't know, but a doll should not have psychological problems. And the only thing that really ended up bothering me about Rudolph was I watched the end of it, and you know, I observe stuff. And all through my life, there's, there's been eight reindeer, and there's been Rudolph. Well, for this, I sit there in this special. When Rudolph gets on the sled, there's six reindeer in him. So somewhere they're missing two reindeers. But anyway, have a great Christmas. I got a great guest. I have, a, I have an excellent writer on. I, I'm a fan of his. I, I, it was nice enough. I sent him a tweet. I tweeted him, and he tweeted me back. And then I had a cancellation, and he came in. And we have Jerry Stahl. Hey, you know Jerry. Uh, how you doing, man? Good. I'm glad you could come on. I, I've been a you, fan. You've of shattered my Christmas now. No, is it? Is it did, I mean, I love those specials. A lot of people are a different to him, but I guess I grew up watching them. You did, you, yeah. But you're Jewish, right? Well, I'm, we're still allowed to watch specials. I am. <laughs> but no, they, so they don't banish us from the tribe for but, watching you know, the odd special. But a lot of kids. But there are no Jewish specials, sadly. I know, isn't that crazy? I mean, you'd yeah. think there'd be one or two. I mean, I know there was a movie Harry Hanukkah with Adam Goldberg years ago, which I never saw. That sounds horrifying. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. So now you're a Pittsburgh guy. Used to be. Now, yeah. You grew up there. I did. Now your father was an immigrant, I believe. He came over from Lithuania okay. when he was ten. Yes. And he was a, he became a judge, right? He became a judge, started as a coal miner, and then uh, he checked himself out when he was forty nine. Okay. Now you, as because you've gone on to write, and some of your writing is very dark. I mean, it, it's funny because you started writing the comedies, but your latest book and your other books, it's it's somewhat dark. It's, it's I was a journalist for a lot of years. I sort of slept my way to the middle and got into comedy because the woman I married who needed a green card, had a connection at uh, a couple comedies. Now, when you were growing up in Pittsburgh, did you think you would follow the writing? I mean, when you were a kid, did you write a lot? Or did you, I mean, what did you do as a kid to get you, put you on that path? Because writers, you find comics, you find a lot of comics, you know, they, they screwed around in school. But writers, it's, it's like schools don't really, especially back in the day, they don't really encourage no. writing. It's like Hemingway said, the best gift a writer can have is an unhappy childhood. So uh, I had ample gifts in that regard and uh you know i'd rather i wanted to do rock and roll but i sucked as a guitar player so i just wanted to do something you could do so naked and out of your mind at four in the morning and possibly still get paid <laughs> what were some of your bands you loved growing up oh man you know i i came up because i'm probably a little older than you probably a lot of, i can't even remember 50 uh you know just the usual the stones uh the seeds and uh dylan all those, all those traditional old school bands, which were like really happening and exciting when I was a kid. We you know, it's funny. I always think about this. Like the young kids now, and I hate when I say that the young kids now it makes me old. But musically, I mean, if you're anywhere from forty to sixty or sixty-five, you got to listen to a lot of great stuff. You got to listen to all the generations. You got the punk. You got that. Now it's like it's. I don't know if when you got here, if the line was dissipated out front, but Justin Bieber is in the studio. So I pull up today, and there's like. I saw those. All yeah. these little kids hanging out, and it's like, that's the crap they're listening to. But for us, we got to listen to such good rock and roll. Except that our parents thought it was crap, too. Right. So there's that. 
And I have a 24-year-old daughter, and, and she loves to listen to the old, you know, quote-unquote old stuff, you know, as much as anything new. But you're a cool dad. I mean, it's, it's, it's I mean. Well, I'll talk no, to her. No, <laughs> but no, you, you dress hip, you, you know, you're hip, you have hip friends, so it's not you're, like. I don't think your kids ever think you're, I'm sure Keith Richards' kid thinks he's a big lame, you know. I think that's just how it goes genetically. So, so you're writing. So you're writing. You have a, you have a bad childhood now. Do you remember the first things you started writing? Were they? Did you have a journal back then, or what? How did you start putting your work onto paper and just sitting there? What made you start doing? I it? started getting rejected by all your finer magazines at a very early age, and uh, I ended up stumbling into journalism. And uh, before that, I, I was always sort of railing against authority the way kids did, probably more back then than they do now. And uh, I found that writing was the one outlet, you know, where you could say things that uh, you might not, not necessarily say to someone's face. And I grew up on all those writers like Nathaniel West and Terry Southern and Hunter Thompson who said the unsayable, you know. Uh, are we allowed to swear on this show? I, uh, I don't yeah, know. Just, uh, if, if you don't, just well, I mean, watch the F-bombs. You can say, you know, the rest There of was stuff. a lot of F-U, okay. you know, going I've, I haven't said F in a long time. Uh, going on and uh, you know to a kid that appeals to you so you sat there and you were writing and now so what were some of the magazines because what were you what kind of articles were you writing well I started writing when I was 20 up in Santa Cruz uh, I started writing for things like the you know Santa Cruz free newspaper and stuff like that but I ended up with a sort of a dual track uh, writing career because I did journalism, wrote for the village, ended up in New York, wrote for the Village Voice. But at the same time, I was writing like fake sex letters for Penthouse. I was writing porn stories for Club International. Well, I know you not wrote, to brag for yeah, Beaver <laughs> magazine. I mean, it was just like ridiculous. But so I, you know, here I'm this little like skeevy kid who's never getting laid. You know, writing an advice like letters for uh, Penthouse, uh, and that's sort of you know. How did this? Is so it's so weird. How did you? fall upon that i mean it's like it's i know like i it's a lot different now for trying to writing i mean now they're the writing not everybody can write because you just go on the internet and it, you're a writer but yeah but i know exactly it's like i have a blog hence i'm a writer but for you i mean it was like did you sit there and go okay i'm, I'm i want to do the journalism i don't do this but i know i can make some cash writing these sex letters well i needed to make cash and i was never good at day jobs i've had every bad day job you can name and i i never quite uh did very well okay. in the offices or the Xerox shops or the sandwich shops. I mean, you're talking to a guy who worked at McDonald's at 38, not to brag. Um, Which is funny. I just read the interview <laughs> with you when you ate at a McDonald's just a uh, Oh, my God, weeks yeah. Ago. We'll get yes, to that because it like all goes with your book. But that must be so funny. A sentimental journey. Yeah, yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, it's just it's wild. But so you, you, you stuck to day jobs. So, so I, I, I literally answered an ad in the back of the Village Voice, and I started writing for these magazines. Um while at the same time publishing in literary magazines and uh, the like. And uh, eventually I answered an ad and I got a job as humor editor at Hustler. Okay. So I moved from New York to Columbus, Ohio, where I lived in the prestigious YMCA. Now, how was that just because you know where else to live or you just said, you know? I wanted to get out. Well, yeah, I, I didn't have a lot of money and I wanted to get out of New York and because I was doing a little drug problem, but at the same time, I had a girlfriend back in New York, so I spent my whole paycheck flying back every weekend okay. and living in uh, Columbus where they had, like, group showers at the YMCA, so I was sharing showers with guys who had, like, black lung disease from the mines. It was really... <laughs> It was a prestige situation <laughs> all the way down the line. So you're, you're out there, you're writing, and I know you wrote, a, you wrote a, an artsy, as they say, it was a very artsy uh, porn, right? 
I was not writing artsy porn. No, didn't you write one? Uh, oh, I, I wrote a porn movie that failed. What someone, no, someone as a said, porn movie? Okay, no, because someone I wrote. They heard you were going to show, and they said, "Oh, he wrote this artsy porn." I, I, wrote, I wrote Cafe Flesh. Uh, me and another guy I was at the height of the punk era. I was living in Hollywood Boulevard. We got a bunch of money from these guys who ran a theater on Hollywood Boulevard, which no longer there, but it's now a different kind of porn theater. But it was called the Cave. Okay. And we literally had to walk past the guy. It had stalagmites and stalactites. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Everything but bats. We had to walk by the screen to go upstairs to get the money from like the mobsters who were paying us. And, you know, like down in front, you know, it was like mortifying. And they literally paid us in quarters <laughs> to make this movie because uh, they had a peep show operation. Right. So I'm getting quarters from all over America. It's just great. Uh, and what happened was we're so naive, we didn't realize they wanted porn. They're like, well, you know, boys, we, uh, we really like it, but we just want eight more scenes. You know what I'm saying? Eight more scenes. So we had to stick in sex scenes. But being rebellious and stupid, we put in the most repulsive, repugnant, <laughs> alienating, essentially autobiographical, uh, sex scenes we could find. So at the original screening, I'll never forget this, on the, uh, it used to be the Pussycat Theater on Hollywood, uh, on uh, Santa Monica, now the Tomcat, I understand. And uh, we got there a little late and there were like these Japanese men running screaming out back to their tour bus. And <laughs> we realized we had essentially failed exactly. as a porn magazine. Or, or you, it was a good or, thing underground Well, you know it. what Lenny Bruce used to say, if you don't drive them out in the first five minutes, you've failed. Uh, but then it ended up replacing Pink Flamingos at the New Art Theater in, uh, in L.A. as a midnight movie. Okay. So go figure. Isn't it crazy how that works? It's, I mean, it's just what catches on sometimes. You just clueless. You go, what the hell? You never know. And it was, uh, it was about at the time of Mad Max and Liquid Sky for those eight people who remember that, which was the post-apocalyptic movies. And it was a post-apocalyptic theme where the only people who could have sex were called sex positives, and they were forced to perform. Highbrow, as you can tell, and that's uh, a great idea. Though now, now it would be they would they would cut it down. They would make it like a R rate RP R seventeen. It'd be like yes. oh, the big sign. It'd be yeah. all green screen. The sex shots would be green screen. Right, and I probably wouldn't get paid in quarters, <laughs> uh, though I might. And that's the story of that. So that's how I ended up writing an accidentally arty porn film. But you were out here. So then you said you met the uh, the woman you met who. The green yes. card. And I, that was in the movie. Elizabeth Hurley played it. If you don't know people, it's a great movie, Permanent Midnight. Ben Stiller played it. I think you. had my ex-wife looked like Elizabeth Hurley, we probably <laughs> would not... She wouldn't be my ex-wife. I'm not not I, sure. I, I want to digress real quick about that. How is it... You know, you, you always talk about people... You you wrote an autobiography, pretty mm -hmm. much. And so you're you're burying your soul, which is great. And but you want feedback, and it got great feedback. What is it like seeing someone play you on a screen? Are you nervous? Are you sitting there going... Eh, are you are you very skeptical or what what was that like? Well, imagine the worst moments of your life reenacted by movie stars nine feet high, and because also I didn't write the screenplay. Okay. Though Ben Stiller and I, after we saw the original uh, cut, we went in and sort of rejiggered it and put in a uh, voiceover and such. But essentially, it was somebody else writing as me. Uh, but Ben was great, and we became. I ended up being best man at his wedding, and we wrote another movie in between What Makes Sammy Run while waiting for the money for this one. And uh, it was very disorienting. I, I would say that if you, if you can't get therapy, have somebody make a movie of your life, and then you will wise up soon when you see yourself doing what you do on screen. So that when the whole story is you, you married her, and that's how you got into TV writing. 
Now, when you got into TV writing, was was your drug use high at that point? Oh, my God. It was ridiculous. Okay. I mean, essentially, the book was a lot longer than it was, but because I'd never used a computer, I had it on one and a half space instead of two. Okay. So I had like thousands of pages, <laughs> of which the editor cut out most of the real down and dirty stuff, you know, living in MacArthur Park, under park benches and other uh, high-end opportunities that I took advantage of and uh, made it sort of a yuppie gone bad. So that is essentially how it was perceived. In fact, I was a TV writer for like three seconds, but because that's what the book ended up focusing on. It's really, yeah, because that's what you think, that you're a veteran writer yes, for all these it's years. It's literally going to be on my tombstone. He only wrote two elves. Right. <laughs> so you went through all this, and, and, and you have a great story of uh, turning your life around. I mean, it's just a matter of when you look at it, so many people just give up. So, you, I mean, you went through, you, I mean, you had everything. And then you sat there. And well, I, I had everything, and then I lost everything. Right, but, but yeah. But then now you have a great life. I mean, you work with I'm some not complaining. People. Yeah, and yeah. You, you have. I see. You know, I fatties. You know, with John uh, Johnny Depp. Yes, it's optioned by Johnny Depp, and uh, many years ago, it's one of those projects. I put flowers on the grave once a year, but you know, you never know. It could happen. Whatever happened to what made Sammy run? Because it, it's it's just a, an, another one that didn't get made. Because it's, it's. I'm the king of writing great movies with great people that don't get made. You know, doesn't that sort of? I, it's so funny, and that happens on TV a lot now too. You'll see a show that's a good show that you like for like two episodes, and no one gives anything a chance. And then you see some crap come out, and you go, "What the hell's going on?" Well, in the words of Elvis Costello, you know, I used to be bitter, now I try to be amused. Right. So I, I try not to get too uh, pissy about it. But it's, you know, it can hurt you. Well, so, so, okay, after Permanent Midnight, your career changed. People, so all of a sudden, I mean, people, how many books had you published when Permanent Midnight, the movie, came out? None. Okay, so, and then so you... Oh, I, I published one, Permanent okay. Midnight. I had six unpublished novels. Uh, the first chapters would appear in Playboy or literary magazines, win awards here and there, but nobody ever published the whole thing. And then after Permanent Midnight, uh, which was the first autobiographical writing I'd done, I just, I wrote, uh, well, I have eight books, seven more works of fiction. So six m- novels and a book of short stories. So how well, how did that actually come to be getting made a movie? I mean, did someone just look at it and say this is a great book? Because you never know, really know the, like especially my listeners don't really know the sheer, process. Sheer happenstance. Uh, a friend of mine who was actually married to Mark Mothersbaugh of Diva, a woman named Nancy Ferguson, hooked me up with these people who produced Natural Born Killers, Jane Hampshire and Don Murphy. And they were looking for something else to do for the, I guess, one of the original writers of Natural Born Killers, a uh, guy named David Velos, who wrote and directed Permanent Midnight. Not sure that I've seen his name much since, but uh, I hope I didn't ruin his career. And uh, it just happened like that. And they put us together. And then the money fell out, as it does sometimes. And so Stiller and I got to be friends and wrote a movie together. And uh, What Makes Sammy Run? And then eventually... It got made, um, Permanent Midnight, and that's how it happened. So you got that, and then after Permanent Midnight comes out. It wasn't something I tried to do. It literally was dumb luck. So, so yeah, I mean, you didn't sit there. I had no agents. I had nothing. I mean, it just, it started as the book, essentially, I was just a skeevy guy, five minutes clean, walking down Hollywood Boulevard, living in the basement of a crack house across from Musso and Frank, where I'd go to use the bathroom every morning, and boy, were they glad to see me. And uh, she said, what, what the hell happened to you? And I told her, she said, you should write about that. So I, you know, bought the typewriter that I wrote with off the back of a truck somewhere. And uh, it ended up being in a magazine called L.A. Style. It was called Naked Brunch originally. Okay. Very cute. And uh, from there I got a book deal, published a book, and from there I got a movie deal. But none of it calculated just... 
It's so weird. Know. I think it happens. I, I've had past guests that have said that. Like, just some of these people, sometimes it's just, it happens. And that's the thing about Hollywood. I mean, some of these people say, you know, I had a small part. I wasn't even supposed to audition for this part. Then I mm-hmm. go in. I do this little scene. They, I have one line, but they said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go and do it because it's work. And then next thing you know, that one lit scene leads to five sure, scenes and yeah. leads to recurring. And I think it happens. I think it just, I mean, you you know, you got along with Stiller good. You seem, you're, you're a very affable guy. You're a likable guy. I mean, you well, know, thank you. And I think, and you're a cool guy. I mean, so I'm just, and not, not, not saying that nicely, but I think. Well, I am now, but you know, talk to me then and your wallet would already be missing. Right, exactly. So, you but, know. but I think <laughs> as you, but as you matured, <laughs> sure. I, you people probably say this guy's good to work with. And I know you've Going through, you're resilient. You've gone through. Well, a lot. some people say that. I mean, I've I've lost a lot of great gigs, and I've had a lot of great gigs. I mean, Hollywood is a is a punishing place. Okay, I got to ask you now. I remember in the book you had talked about it. at one point you were just on the wits end, and you kept getting hired. Yes. What was I mean? What? Well, what I think what happens like? is because people in Hollywood don't want to take a risk. But if one person has already spent money on you, they figure you're safe to spend money on. So yeah, I stumbled from gig to gig. Uh, my writing was atrocious. I didn't know how to write scripts. I never heard a final draft. I didn't know how to make the indentations. I thought people just talked. You know, I didn't know. I'm not a journal. I mean, I'm not a uh, a film school grad, right. to say the least. So yeah, for a while I kept getting hired. I had to work really hard to fail, but I put in the hours and uh, I managed. That's just amazing. It's so funny because there are. It just and it's funny that thing you said about the script. I remember I wrote a script with a buddy of mine, a TV script, and we had no idea what to do. And I had the little brother when there was back here, the brother, and then a little disc, mm-hmm. and we submitted it to this agent. She's like, "Well, it's nice, but." Uh, sitcoms are written like sitcoms not movies and i thought the same thing i'm like well is the dialogue funny yes is it well then just convert it you know it's, it's yeah. not like it's nothing it's like get off right. your ego you know i writers i mean Kerouac, they said wrote on the road on a sure he wrote thing. on a scroll yeah so it's yeah. just crazy three days and and it gave him hemorrhoids exactly. but he did <laughs> use a lot of dexedrine <laughs> so after permanent midnight you start getting tv writing jobs right a okay. few. Okay, now well, actually, before Permanent Midnight is when I had the TV job. But we did ALF. But I know later you okay. wrote the CSI and stuff like that. Yeah, eventually I wrote C- CSI. is a funny story. I mean, again, uh, I originally joined the Hollywood YMCA because I had no place to live and I needed to shower. And this was after Permanent Midnight? After Permanent Midnight. I was there a few, a few years later, and I'm in a sauna, and I'm reading a book by Tom Wolfe. And this guy looks over and says, oh, you know, I like that book. And then we start talking. He says, oh, you write Permanent Midnight? My daughter loves that book. And he's like, you know... I used to do a lot of Hollywood movies. It was Billy Peterson. Okay. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to do a TV show in a couple of years. Uh, and, and would you be interested? And I, yeah, sure. You know, didn't think much of it. Yes, and then literally a, talk, a, yeah. a couple <laughs> years later, I get this call. And sure enough, one of those rare nude encounters in Hollywood. Uh, just a couple of mooks sitting around a sh- in a schwitz. And, uh, and I got a gig. Now, did I sign up and become a staff writer? No, because I'm a moron, and I just became a consultant. Um, because I always had this... It's like what they said about Willie Loman. He always had the wrong dreams. Right. They said it at his funeral. Uh, I always wanted to write novels. Every time I'd start making the big Hollywood money, I just a switch would go off, and I would walk away from bazillions of dollars to write a book for five cents. And uh, thus... That's the uh, arc of my career. Why do you think you do that? I mean, is it just because I, I I always love novels. In retrospect, I, I wish I had just stuck to TV. I'd be a you know a much richer man today. But uh, you know, there's just a thing when I was coming up. Novels were what I wanted to do. You know, and that's what I've ended up doing. 
a, a big personal expense, but for my 11 readers, they really appreciate it. You know? Well, no, yeah, it's, it, that's good, though. I mean, of course, it's one of the things where it's financially, yeah, you look back and go, what the hell? But, I mean, I know guys who write you know, for TV, and they're like, you're in there for so many hours. You end up getting fat because the food's always craft. They, they, yeah. they it's, just, it's a very long process, and I know a lot of comics. Like my friend Rich Scheidner, you know, was a great headlining comic, and he wrote, and he just said, I just, it's not me. I, it's something like you sit there, and it's like, it is like corporate America, somewhat. Oh, yes and no. I just did an episode of my friend's show, Mark Maron. I wrote an episode for him. Very funny show. I've seen it once or twice. And uh, I loved it. I mean, you're, I, for me, it was great because, you know, novel writing is so punishingly solitary. But, uh, you know, I sat in the room with a bunch of Dave Anthony, other really funny guys, and Maron, who's just hysterical. And, uh, you know, it's work. But it's deeply satisfying and instantly gratifying because it just it's going to go, you know, they're shooting in a couple of weeks, and that's great. Now, when you, when you branched out to write some TV stuff, as you say. Now and again. Yeah, but now, did you, once we said, you know, you didn't know what Final Draft did and this stuff like that. What was your, how did you, going from a novel writer over to that, that how did it happen? Because I, I, I had a very good teacher. I mean, uh, the, the two things, um, you know, what makes Sammy run, I was working with Stiller, who's a genius at directing and putting him, you know, he obviously is an actor, but just structuring and, and all that. It was, it was like being paid to be able to go to film school. And this other movie that I did came out last year, the HBO movie, uh, Hemingway and Gellhorn. I worked with Phil Kaufman, who's done, you know, the right stuff, right. quills. And again, great guy. And it, it is literally like being subsidized to learn how to write from a master. So that, that was how I learned. You know. No, it's just because I'm looking at your stuff. You do, you are, as I said, the the, uh, the novelist and stuff like that. It's just, it's very different. And you write drama, CSI, then to write comedy, Marin. It's just, it's very... My, and let's not forget the art house classic, Bad Boys too. Oh, which I know. No, okay, <laughs> tell me about that because I'm going to be honest. I, this is, as I said, I, this is how old I am. When I hear Bad Boys, whenever they, I think of the S.A. Morales, Sean Penn movie. I've never, because I've never seen the, the other ones. But how did that come about? Because it's so different. Like, you think because I, I had started working, uh, for some reason, like, I, I, long story short, I started, uh, I, hired me to write a movie for Johnny Depp. He was going to do, he had a two movie deal. He was going to do one, this sort of possibly successful movie about a pirate on a ship. Uh, and then the other one was going to be this follow-up, some thriller. And I was hired, of course, to write the never made, soon-to-be-never-made thriller. And uh, that's how I got into the Bruckheimer world. And uh, he's great to writers. And, you know, on that movie, Bad Boys 2, which they hired me for, I mean, I think they used like 16 writers, you know, and somehow my name got picked out of a hat to get the credit. It could have been anyone, you know. Uh, happily, it bought a house and put my older daughter through college. But uh, it's just, again, it's random. You know, whenever I've gone out to try and get the gig and do the traditional way, it just doesn't happen. You know, it either just, the cosmos drops it in your lap, or it doesn't happen. Well, how do you focus as a writer? Because Bad Boys 2 is not the typical Jerry Stahl work. I mean, how do you sit? Do you have to put yourself in a well, certain you, mind frame, or how does that work for you? You know what? You find a way... To relate, you, you you're in a room with a lot of people, and you got to be funny on demand. I was brought in as a, what they call a production rewrite, which is when they throw ridiculous amounts of money for you to per week because they know that at a at a date certain, as Hillary Clinton used to say, they're going to start shooting the damn movie. That was loud. So uh, that's how I emphasize when I talk about bad boys <laughs> too. I, I feel the need to uh, pound the desk, Rush Limbaugh style, and. Uh, 
you find a way to be funny. You know, we're funny guys. And I, I, I'm not a snob about things. Uh, and I just figured, you know, Martin Lawrence is hysterical. They're probably not going to use anything I write anyway, you know, because these guys are going to improvise. But, you know, you learn. And uh, I've done worse for less, put it that way. You know, it's, it's, you can't complain. As you got a house and you put your daughter I, I am not complaining. But, you know, in, in retrospect, I think I was a bit of a snob about wanting to do novels, 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 not do TV and movies. But, but now TV is so cool. And about 11 people still read novels. So it's tricky. But, you know, you get into this almost uh, faith-based devotion to one way of art. And so in my dotage, you know, I got eight books. That's what I did. I didn't get one published until I was 40 because I wasted a lot of time being a professional heroin aficionado. So, you know, I'm just grateful I got anything done considering yeah. where I started. Yeah, I mean, it's a great career. I mean, it's, it's starting at 40. I mean, so I still hope I <laughs> Maybe something will come in my life. Um, well, you got this great radio show. Yeah, what are you, you talking know, about? Well, you know, I want more. I want more. I want, I want, I want well, you know, guests like you every week. Talk to Justin Bieber. He's yeah. just down the hall, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so now, do you watch TV a lot? I mean, as someone who's in the media, I mean. Sure, I love TV. Like, what are some of the shows you like? I mean, because you said, and I think TV's actually getting a lot better with Showtime and AMC and just all the shows that are just you know, different. I'm, I'm, I'm just like every other MOOC. You know, uh, you know the, your homelands, your justifieds, love that stuff. Uh when it's, you know, I also have a 19-month-old baby, so when it's insomnia time, nothing hits the spot like, you know, Law & Order SVU at, you know, quarter after hell o'clock in the morning. Yeah, you know what's funny about that? <laughs> this is God's honest truth. When I used to go back east, I would take the red eye, and I can never sleep on planes, even though I sit in my mind, I'm going, okay, I'm going to sleep. Even though if you do sleep in the red eye, it's like five hours. It's not a full no, night's sleep. It's almost worse than not yeah, sleeping. But I sit there, and I would always doze off, because Virgin America has the USA, has the TVs. I would fall asleep, and I swear to God, USA would sit there. I'd be fall asleep during criminal intent. Nice. And then I'd wake up. And SVU would be on. I said, well, I know I slept for like 45 minutes because it would go to that 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock change. And I love those shows. I mean, they're, if, if you watch USA, they're all, it's like that should, USA should be called C NCIS SVU because that's all they play. Yeah, I, I, I love the law and orders. I mean, it's great. What the hell, you know? Now, when you wrote for CIS, did, would you, did you watch some of the episodes you wrote? I you, mean, the, mean, you mean CSI? CSI, because I know the one that said it was the, the – well, I saw the Furries one. Because mm -hmm. I was sitting there, my girlfriend watched it. I was flipping around, and then I heard you got heat for the Big Baby episode or something like that. Or I've gotten heat for a few. I actually got heat from the furries and the plushies because I think I conflated or confused. Like one of them is based on cartoon characters where they dress up like cartoon characters, animals, right. and the other is like Pepe Le Pew, for example, for you non kids. And the other is based on actual animal animals. And I guess it's like confusing, you know, uh, Hindus and, and Buddhists. You right. Know, they were very offended. So I, I lost a lot of my audience there. Did they write to, like, to the show or did oh they write God. to you? And yeah. it's just, I, it's I think they picketed CBS in their, in their uh, furry <laughs> outfits, which I would have loved to be there for that. Um, yeah, you know, the ironic thing is people ask, well, how can you write for TV? It's like, I got to do some of them. I mean, I hate this word transgressive, but it's a very trendy literary word. But I got to do some of the most out there, bizarro, twisted stuff at the nine o'clock family hour on CBS. I was sort of back when they had Rolodexes. I was like the guy, for, you know, the weirdo, junky, perv guy. So, yeah, I did one called uh, King Baby. Right. About a uh, Las Vegas mogul who has a secret life as an infantilism where you know he loved breast milk and uh to dress up in diapers and uh 
was killed after somebody gave him an LSD enema uh, and flew out a window. That old routine. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, Jesus, you know, I've got like biz- millions of viewers watching this stuff. Would that my books got this much. But ironically, it turns out that George Bernard Shaw, for you literary people in the audience, actually drank breast milk every day of his life and lived to be 94. Well, there you go. Now, when, when you would write those episodes, do they come to you and say, okay, we have this idea, or is nope. it just you? You say, I'm, I'm the write. one. No, the, I'd, I'm, I'd come up with the crazy-ass ideas. Now, how do you do and It's so funny, because I'm the same And then way. they would help break the stories, okay. because, I mean, this stuff is complicated. <laughs> I'm sort of missing the plot gene, which I made the mistake <laughs> of saying to a director once, and I instantly lost that job. Um, how many jobs have you lost? Oh, my God. I think the last great job that is still killing me, I was hired to write uh, The Thin Man for Johnny Depp, which Warner Brothers, God bless them, wanted to make into an action movie, which is sort of the antithesis of what The Thin Man right. really was. He was just a talker and a smooth guy. He wasn't a big jujitsu guy and uh that gig went south but then they hired two great writers after me uh and they didn't make it either so the movie was probably just doomed um but yeah i've lost a few is it because of creative differences or just you just sit there and go man this i just i can't work with these people or i mean no listen i i you know would have loved to do the gig it's just um they don't like the cut of your jib or you weird them out or you have different ideas about what's what johnny wanted me in because we were friends and uh that's how it happened. You never really know with these things. You know, Susan Sontag once said this brilliant thing, which is, whatever happened is not what you think happened. So you just don't know in this world. You know, you can take it personal and, and rip your hair out, or you can just roll with it. And I've, I've tried to learn to roll with it after I rip my hair out. Yeah, exactly. But, no, but you have a good-headed hair. So, you know, Thank that's, you. you know, it grows back. Yeah, see, I'm, yeah. Me, I'm, I'm screwed. Well, so now you've had, you've had eight novels, okay? Now, the mm-hmm. first one was Permanent Midnight. That was not a novel. That was okay. a memoir. Okay. Yeah. And you so had it's seven, seven books okay. fiction, yeah. Now, what was the second one you published? It was called Perv, A Love Story, which was about a 16-year-old kid who grew up in Pittsburgh and wanted to be a hippie and run away from home, and it didn't go well. And how was the reaction to that? Uh, how was the reaction? Did, did a lot of people buy it? Did people know about it? Did you get good reviews? Because I think your writing is something that, you know, and it's, you're even with the CSI, you have a, you have a dark you have a Well, dark it's humor. very dark also... Interestingly enough, back then when TV was considered lame, because my first book got me pegged as a TV writer, uh, I, I wasn't exactly taken seriously as a novelist. Okay. So to publishing, I was like a Hollywood guy. To Hollywood, I was like a book guy. So I was just some weird Yeti kind of character in between. So my books have eventually, and it began with Perv, developed a huge kind of a cult following as opposed to like being on the front page of the New York Times. The most mainstream one was probably I Fatty, which has been translated all over. My favorite translation being in Spanish where it's Yo Fatty. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, were, were you a Fatty Arbuckle fan or how did that happen? I that was not. About? I oh. was not a Fatty Arbuckle fan. Uh, I had this friend who you may have heard of, Anthony Bourdain, who... Uh, you know, we were friends over the years. I did no reservations a couple times. And uh, he, God, I sound like Ed name dropper, which I don't mean to be. But, but, the, no, or, but, no, the, but the origin of the story is he had a friend who was publishing for Bloomsbury Books, a series of nonfiction books about interesting people. Bourdain did one on Typhoid Mary, who it turns out was like a chef or a cook you okay. know, in New York City. Uh, I was going to do one on, on uh, Fatty Arbuckle because I thought it was an interesting story. It's, it's how, like... Uh, Hearst invented uh, ta- 
tabloid journalism on his back, literally with the composite photos. But when I started to write it, it sounded like a goddamn term paper. And I just realized, you know, I can't do this. So I just sort of, without asking their permission, decided to make it a kind of a faux memoir written in the first person as in Fatty's voice. Because back then was the year of the wisecrack. You know, and I love those voices of these vaudeville guys right. and they just a snappy patter. And so it's just very funny as hell, but kind of a bittersweet story of this poor bastard's life. And that's the origin of it. I was hired to do nonfiction, couldn't pull it off, and then just jumped into a, a novel version. Now, where do you come up with your idea? I mean, some of your ideas are just, you know, out there. I mean, would you just, well, they, you know, they, they pop, people, not out there. I mean, I mean, I think we all have a certain view. Uh-huh. How do they, how do you sit there and when you come up with an idea? Because that idea also, you know, like the furries was a TV uh, thing, but like your, your new book, I mean, it's, it's a great idea, but when you sit there, how do you sit there and go, okay, I have to sustain a whole story. Do you go through a lot of ideas no. before you sit there and go, okay, I can write this many pages or you just have that so much nope. confidence in your writing that you say, here's my idea. I can write. Neither. Okay. Uh, in, in the case of Happy Mutant Baby Pills, this idea smacked me in the face for two reasons. I'll keep this a short story. No, go, but no, I, go. I, I, I got hepatitis C, which is what junkies get. So it took Lou Reed out, you know, which turns into cancer or uh, cirrhosis. And uh, I had it for years and years and years. And I never did the cure, which was interferon, which worked 30% of the time. It is very hellish. And I know people who killed themselves on it. It was so brutal. So long story short, I got found out about this trial program at Cedars. So I went on this non-FDA approved medication. Second part of the story is my girlfriend at the time had just gotten pregnant. Okay. From me, happily. And uh, they told me, if you so much as touch a pill or she touches your sweat while you are on this medication, it's so toxic. This kid will be born essentially like purple with wheels and a Ron Perlman head. Right. And I say that with love because I adore Ron Perlman, but it could look tricky on a baby. And that made me think about this world we are in, which is so full of toxic heinous baby mutating material and I began research because I was so terrified that instead of running away from it I just dove in for example I found out that like breast milk of all things you'd think the safest thing on the planet right. our second breast milk reference I know it's, it's uh, I think it's uh, it's, it's a theme it's a theme it's, show it's, it's, exactly uh, you know it has benzene and toilet cleaner and paint thinner and those are like the good things. And, you know, lithium, which considering my kid, little free lithium might not hurt. Uh, so I dove into all that for the premise of a woman who wants to protest what is happening to us thanks to deregulation and Monsanto with GMOs and decides to take every over, under, and beyond the counter drug in the world to give birth to the most mutant child in the world as a protest against capitalism. The second part of the story being that the guy who falls in love with her is a failed writer. And I'm always fascinated with guys who want to be writers. Like, this is the guy who read the, bo- the backs of cereal boxes as a kid. Yeah, I read that because it's so funny. And we all yeah. do that. I mean, and, I, and then grows up and writes the backs of cereal boxes. See, that's, but that's such that's, a great that's idea. That's his guy. Because we all, we, all, we all read that yeah. stuff. And, and there's someone doing that. And that's so, I know. And I, and I love that idea that this guy, he writes the side effects. He's the guy who came up with anal leakage. <laughs> it's his triumph because he's thinking like, you know, 
if I said seepage, that's just disgusting. But leakage sounds kind of around the house, you know, pipes leak, sink leaks. It's just, you know, it's home repair. So he's that guy. He has the series of all those jobs. Like, if you ever have a colonoscopy, you have to have a fleet enema. He's the guy who writes the directions and tells you that it's not bad for you. But what can happen? You know, he walks into his office with his muffin and his coffee, his Dilbert mug, and he sits down and he writes this all day. But in his head, he's James Joyce. Right. So these two characters collide, and that's where that came about. Because when I was on the medication, I couldn't sleep. And we were talking about uh, uh, Law and Order at 4 in the morning, or MSNBC at 4 in the morning with, like, you know, Morning Joe. And that bored the crap out of me. But the, the commercials killed me. You know, the testosterone crap under your armpits, the restless knee syndrome. I, uh, you know, I love that. See, I, I went through that a while ago. I was, I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And before I went to the hospital, I just thought something was wrong. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I mean, I would just, my body was just exhausted. Oh, I'm so sorry, man. Oh, I'm, I'm, you look I'm, healthy I've now. I've never been healthier. I mean, yeah. just with medication and good eating. You look just great. Like yeah. Getting rid of all the crap you eat, which we don't know. It helps. It yeah. goes into that. But that's the same thing. I was at a, a point where I could never sleep i would sit there and i would lay down and when you're in a kind of condition you're sick and you don't know it you have a thing where you you feel like you're resting but you aren't and i, mm. I mean i was and they even gave me like sleeping pills and i took like one of them and i only slept for like three hours you know and i but i would stay up and i would just sit there with the tv on and it's true you watch it and you go man I mean, just the commercials are like the chillo, the pillow that's cold. And you sit there and you go, someone is writing, not only is someone writing these commercials, there's actually, and you know there's some director who thinks this is like the best work ever. I know, that's what's it, amazing. It's like you sit there yeah. and go, it's, you look at it and you go, this is crap, the chillo. It's like, they always have that people going, oh my God. You know, they always have that overacting. And it's, of course, and, and I, I oh my God. Yeah, and don't, I don't, don't these people know that it's so campy? Or of maybe, course they know. But it's like... I mean, and it's a check. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. They're getting paid. You but know? it's like, you sit there and you go, yeah. but it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy, I wouldn't buy something. I just saw a, the bacon bowl. And I go, you got to be joking me. They're having commercials for, it's a bowl that you wrap bacon around and you cook and then you put stuff in it. That's and, America, man. It's, it's just like, these people are getting this and they wonder why everyone's sick. There is that. Yeah. I remember when I, when I did have that McDonald's job, they made us watch a video on how to make French fries properly. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, as I was watching the McDonald's employees in their little uniform, the actors, and I'm thinking, they pro- you know, who knows? This guy probably went to Juilliard, you right. know? And he got a gig, and he's all excited, and now this is what he does. Well, that's like Ernie Hudson, was, who was in Ghostbusters. The Harvard-trained actor, great actor, but everyone will always know him as the black Ghostbuster. They won't know this guy who was a great, has a great career. People sit there, and they look at certain roles, and they go... Oh, yeah, that's what you got to do. Well, it's a quality problem. At least he's not known as the McDonald's right. fry guy, you know. Now, the McDonald's, that happened when you went through rehab, right? When you were in Arizona? Mm-hmm. And so now, was it, how did you pick Arizona, first of all? Was it just, did you, you want to get out of L.A.? Or how does it work? Uh, you know, I was trying to get clean, and somebody recommended this rehab, and it wasn't that expensive, and it was at a converted motel in Phoenix. And uh, you had to get a job, and uh, I ended up at McDonald's until they fired me. Now, why'd you, how'd you, I mean, you had to do something really bad to get fired from McDonald's because I've seen some of these people at McDonald's. And I, you know. Well, I don't think it was pissing in the egg McMuffin batter because they didn't discover that until the book came out. <laughs> so I don't think that was it. Um, it was very 
let's just say I had the, the opportunity to learn humility because it was across from the Motorola factory and all these like guys, Motorola in their little short sleeve shirts with the ties and the little thing. And then look at me like, you know, I, mind you, I'm 38. So right. they're looking at me and, you know, my job in life is to make, give them somebody to feel superior to. Uh, I mean, I still remember to this day the like the 16 year old kids hearing them whisper, you know, I think he's retarded, you know, and, uh, that was the job where they hired me because I guess, you know, nobody will work cheaper and complain less than somebody who's just coming off of uh, heroin or Coke or whatever, you know, it's like a, it's like the prison, the prison uh, pool of employees. Well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, they want $15 an hour now, you know, that that's the big, uh, and they should, they should get it at least. Fifteen though? Absolutely. You tried doing that job hey, for a day. When, hey, when I was in when I was in high school, we had that where you get out early to work. We used, every kid in my neighborhood got the job, and we were called porters at a Marriott on the turnpike. Sure. And we cleaned the toilets, and we did everything. Yeah. Back then, minimum wage was like five and a quarter, and we were just happy. Yeah, you were also in high school, and right. the people getting those jobs now are like sixty-year-old men, right. Who got laid off from a job, and whose pension got eaten up by some CEO, like you know, our former. Republican presidential candidate who just eat eight people's pensions or what's happening to people in Detroit. So yeah, I think they should get more than that. Personally, do you are you very politically involved, or are you very opinionated? Do you ever? Yeah, no, I'm. I'm politics is. I don't know if you call it politics. I mean, I, I I think people are getting screwed right and left, and yeah, you want to do something about it. And um, part of this book is is has a political bent to it, of course. Yeah. Now, what about what do you think about healthcare? I just, the whole healthcare thing. I just want to know because. I, I was lucky, and as I said, when I was in the hospital, talking about getting lucky, my buddy kept saying, get, get health insurance. So I got Anthem health insurance. Supposed to start in the middle of June, started in the middle of May. I said, I paid. I was in the hospital two, two weeks later. My bill would have been- Weren't four, they happy? Oh, yeah. My yeah. bill would have been 44000 It was 1900 yeah. Okay, which just makes me crazy. Going, I'm in the hospital for four days. It's 44000 I mean, It's just insane. But uh, like, would they, with you, with your, with your taking that test, now that was all off the book, the, uh, the side effect. Medicine. It wasn't off the book. I mean, they actually paid me six hundred bucks. I mean, it was Abbott Pharmaceuticals running a, running a test, so that that costs nothing. I mean, you're essentially signing on to be a guinea pig, and uh, I was desperate because I was dying. You know, I was heading into cirrhosis. But uh, you know, as far as healthcare, I mean, the bill was pretty much written by big pharma and the insurance industry because nobody had the balls in Congress to pass single payer, which would have made it all easy. So there's that. So and you uh, you address that somewhat in the book a bit yeah okay. now now when you when you took the side when side effects where did did you did you have to leave your house because you said you know you couldn't touch your well she decided it would be easier to go back to uh, where she lived in Austin with her family uh, f- so that there would be people because if she just stayed in L A and I split you know it would have been harder because right. L A is just a harder place and plus I had to go uh, down to take these pills. You know, I had, to, I had to get my blood checked every week after I took the, you know, pills. So I had more tracks than I'd had in years. Now, was it, was it, a, did you deal with pain or what was, what did you go through? The side effects were pretty crazy. Not as bad as interferon. And I'm so grateful I got cured. I don't want to bitch, but it was sort of like being very itchy on bad acid for a month at a time. It was, it was mental. It was very trippy. You'd be sort of driving home and like. Wait, don't I live up that street? Okay. So it, it, it actually wrote another book on it called Bad Sex on Speed that came out in January because I thought my brain is so kind of like 
Picasso-esque and fried right now that I can either not write or I can turn this to an advantage and create a character who thinks like that okay. and write from his point of view. So I created these sort of speed-addled characters because I couldn't sleep either. And I'd done speed and it was vaguely similar. And so I, I wrote a book on it uh, in sort of this crazed, maniacal state that I was in. Was it hard to write when you're when your mind's like that, or did you, I mean, do you have, I mean, it sounds no. like something you're going through. It's it's you know the stuff pours out of you, and you know writing is it's like one of the movies. You know when it works, you forget you're in a chair. You know a good movie, you forget you're watching a movie, and when writing works, it takes you out. So for me, it was great because I you know I'm I'm a guy who likes to write all night, and uh, it's a crazy making process anyway. It's like James Joyce said to his daughter, who was schizophrenic. The only difference between her and me is I know how to write. So okay, so you're writing now. What I, I, I'm always IMDBing stuff, people. What is uh, Jerry Stahl rides dirty with Ben Stiller, Jason Schwartzman? What is, what is that a? That is uh, Larry Charles, my close personal friend, and I. We're, we were adapting uh, my last book before those painkillers um, for novel for uh, a series. That's my author video. So, you know, you do author videos now. I don't know. You've never that. heard of that, really. No. Well, that's how people promote books these days. They do videos. So uh, I got some, some people I knew called in some favors, and Larry directed me sort of li- pretending to live in my Cadillac, going around begging people for book blurbs. So we did Jason Schwartzman, Michael C. Hall from Dexter, and Flea, and then Ben Stiller, who couldn't be there because he's out of town, put in a sort of phone appearance. I, you should watch it. It's pretty funny. What can I find on YouTube? or It's on Funny or Die. Okay. Uh, Do you know Funny or Die? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I used to well, hang out back, God, back in the day, I used to hang out with Adam McKay. We were Philadelphia sure. comic buddies. I, I love Adam McKay. Uh, yeah, no, Funny or Die, uh, through Red Hour, Ben's company, and Funny or Die financed it and supplied the cameras and such. So uh, it's a it's like a six-minute ridiculous trailer for my book, promoting now, Happy Mutant Baby Pills. Now, do you still have the Cadillac? Because I know in... That I, was st- I still do have that Cadillac, yeah. Okay, now, what, what year enough. Cadillac was that? Uh, well, this... Iteration of my Cadillac is 2001, so it's it's it gets me where I'm going, but uh, you know it's no Prius. Yeah, but it's it, just kind of. And then you're wearing the black. Now that's one thing I remember in the movie when you. Ah. You kind of know your character said I, in the interview, and actually in the you, interview, you, fi- you find your cliche and you stick to it. In the interview in the, for the book, it said he shows up, you know, wearing all black and uh, with his really oh with his God. daughter's tattoo uh, name yeah. tattooed on his arm. Yeah. And Look it's, at me. Did you always? I mean, did you just when you always wore black all your life? Were, I, I actually have blue jeans on, but you still um, got that the dark thing going. Have you always dressed like that? Uh, no, I used to stick to pastels and madras, but you know, one day I just said, you know, you're not golfing. Why are you wearing the orange Republican pants? Shape up. So, uh, with the, now how do you promote, are you going to go on a book tour with the book or how does that, how do you promote the book? Not so case? much anymore. You know, it's not like the old days. I'm doing a lot of podcasts. I'm going to do the Nerdist tomorrow. I did, uh, Neil Strauss's the other day and, uh, it's mostly that kind of, I did Marin's, uh, WTF. Uh, it's mostly that kind of stuff now. Some writers still on book tours, but mostly they don't think it's that cost effective and you're kind of on your own now, you know, you just do what you can. Hey, have you noticed uh, since the advent of Kindle and all that, has that affected the way you promote a book or the way you sell a book? Because people just seem like people aren't just buying books anymore. You, you see bookstores closing, which is sad because it's best. I mean, there's, there's this yeah. bookstore in Burbank that's this old bookstore, and you find like 
I'll find I love no, Springsteen. I, I, I'll find Burbank old books has, for like two bucks. You'll no, find this I, book I love those. Yeah, I I don't know what's going to happen with all that. People ask me all the time. You know, uh, do I think it's like the death of literature? It's like no, it's just another thing that's happening. You know, uh, yeah, this book's already on. You know, on aud- on tape and uh, on Kindle and eBooks and all that stuff. Uh, the way you promote it is just the way any cornered rat does when it's desperate and just do whatever the hell you can and uh, that's what I'm trying to do now the book on tape have, mm-hmm. all, have all your books been going on tape or how does how does how does that work and do you, I, you know I'm not even sure uh, bad sex on speed which is the one before this I did myself on tape which was a trip what was that like okay because you sit there you're, you're a writer and you guys are very I'll thing. tell you exactly what it's like everyone says it's like over stuff is great but you're, it's your words it's like wow I wish I'd written this like this and I'm trying to like ad lib and change set and they're like what do you you know because I'm a compulsive rewriter you okay. know there's like a famous story about this great Jewish black humorist uh from the 70s named Stanley Elkin, who literally would ride the printing truck down to Jersey, you know, like red penning. And I'm that guy. So uh, it was tricky because reading your own writing. And now I'm doing Permanent Midnight, which oddly was never on uh, tape. I'm doing that one too. I'm you're, doing, you're doing the reading. Yeah. And as I'm reading, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Or, oh, I would have, you know, this is well, a great that, sentence. That must be interesting because you wrote it how many years ago? Long time ago. So, as a writer, you've come. Oh, I think it was like 95. So you've grown so much as a writer. Now you're sitting there going uh, back and you're and, probably and like. And as a person. I mean, yeah, it was you, like I was five minutes clean. So I'm like, Jesus, that, I shouldn't have said that about <laughs> him. Oh, my God. What was I thinking? No wonder they were pissed off. <laughs> but, you know. It was, it was a better and worse book for being so goddamn raw. It was right. very raw. I wasn't trying to look good, you know? Well, it's good. I mean, you, it's, you let your, you know, you were yourself. I mean, you, you wrote how you felt about that. You know, I, I That's st- how I felt at the time. It's a snapshot of a time. And the best advice I ever got was from uh, Hubert Selby. I don't know if you know who he I'm is. I'm not sure he is. He's a great writer. He wrote A Requiem for a Dream, okay. Last Exit to Brooklyn. He right. was a, a fa- he was a, an addict himself who got clean. And he, he said two things that meant a lot to me as a, as a writer, a quote-unquote artist. He said, one, when you write about people you hate, write about them with love, which sounds corny, but coming from the biggest, hard-ass bastard in the world, I took it. Second, I was like that, you know, well, I'm off drugs now. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my edge, you know. And he just looked at me, like laughed in my face and said, you know, until you're absolutely clean, you don't know how goddamn crazy you are, you know? Only he didn't say goddamn. Right. And it's really true. Uh, the difference between being an asshole on drugs and an asshole off drugs is when you're off drugs, you have nobody to blame. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> but I always say that's always the thing when, when a girl, like, the people say, why well, girls treat guys like crap a lot of times because they sit there and they go, well, okay, if the guy, if I, if, if you know, like they, I'm sorry, if they date guys or they treat him like crap. Well, the guy, if I break up with him, everyone's like, oh, he's an asshole. But if you're dating a real nice guy and you break up with him, everyone's like, well, why'd you break up with him? He's a nice guy. It's, just, it's the same thing. That's true. So that, it's, I that went is very true. around the corner with that. No, but I, I think you make the same point. No, so now with, after, I just want to ask you about the, the hepatitis. Now, mm-hmm. did, the, did that cure it? I mean, did, did, or how does that work with the... Well, hepatitis is a virus, okay. so they measure the viral load. Um, when... I got checked before I went in. The doctor said those words that you really don't want to hear. He goes, wow, this looks like something out of a Ray Bradbury novel. Because I, I had literally like 66 
million. Did you feel count. awful? Oh, did you I feel felt, lethargic? Felt horrible. Well, yeah. what, did you did you something you knew you had it? How long did it take you to get to the doctor and go? Hey, I do something about this. Was it a while? It took me years, but I wouldn't do. I didn't trust the cure. Okay. So I just my solution was to do the every alterna thing known to man. You know, the wheatgrass, uh, vegetarian yoga. You know, which. While it might not have cured it per se, I think it kept me going and kept my immune system functioning, you know. Uh, that said, when push came to shove, I had to go right to Big Pharma, who's developing this drug that wiped it out. And here I am railing against Big Pharma. It's like if you have appendicitis and Joseph Mengele takes out your appendix, do you get off the table and shoot him in the face? You right. know, how do you handle it? So that was my situation. And so now your counts are down lower. I'm done. It's gone. So it's done. It's and what they call undetectable, knock on wood. Now, uh, now, do you think this will, a lot of people will be able to do this uh, yeah. sure now? I mean, because I, mean, I just saw sure. Dallas Buyers Club, and they did a thing where he was doing sure. the different things, and the FDA, you know. And mm -hmm. I, I know, I mean, I have a friend whose wife had cancer, and he said, you know, the doctor would always sit there and go, well, you know, you should really try this medicine. And you see no. his pen, his pen says this. And I yeah. do it with my medicine. My doc, I, I told my doctor, I said, well, my medicine with a discount, like it's 125 a month with $150 off. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, wait a second. So do you, I mean, do you think now, though, will this, will the FDA approve this? Well, they approved a version of it with a different drug company called Gilead, I think. I read, read in a paper a couple of days ago. And it's a great thing because the, the cure before this for my particular genome, not to get too science project-y, was maybe 40 to 70%. And it was a punishing. You know, it was, it's, it's like chemo. Um, just a horrible, horrible side effects. Mine didn't have the side effects. And aside from mental weirdness which i've lived with anyway uh it didn't have you know it wasn't so bad so i'm sure because there's a big market for it but i think traditionally people associated hepatitis c with low lives so they didn't really kind of do the research on it because there wasn't money there right you know so now you just must feel great i mean it must be a big relief I, it too. Is it must be a, well you know when i think about it i've spent most of my adult life like half of it strung out Half of it's sick. Uh, basically, on hepatitis C, you wake up feeling like you have the world's worst hangover every day. But you don't have the fun right. part about actually earning that hangover by getting <laughs> loaded. Because, you know, I haven't got loaded in a long time. So, uh, yeah, I feel great. It's, it's a crazy thing. It's like I've already been old. Now I get to be old sort of again, but I feel better about it. Yeah, it must be also great now that you have a young... Child at home. It's insane because yeah, I mean, it's, it's the old days you would be going. I mean, I have friends who are fifty. My friends just had a, his sons too, and sometimes he goes, he's fifty three, and he works. He has a company, he works a lot. And he's like, man, I sit here. He goes, I'm just, just freaking exhausted. No, it is exhausting, and, and particularly at my age, it's a race to see if, like, you know, she'll be out of diapers before I'm in them. You know. <laughs> now, now, does your daughter want to follow your footsteps in writing? The older daughter, or she writes a bit, but you know, because she knows I'm a writer, I have to hear it from other people because she's got. A lot of I went and saw her reading. She's writing a book called uh, "Am I a Bad Conversationalist," which is just hysterical. But now I'm the sort of parent who's the subject of my child's writing. It's like, oh my <laughs> god! No wonder people hated me. You gotta have a thick skin, man. <laughs> but you gotta, you gotta be proud of her, though. At least you, I'm, you know. I'm massively proud of her for doing that and, and working and you know paying her way in the world. It's not easy. But uh, now I am the subject of much, uh, she's making carnival with her parents. 
I mean, you know, how is it for a kid to have like a he's a he's a junkie, which is weird, and then I'm a celebrity junkie. Right. So you know, at PTA, I'm the guy we walk in, and all the parents like move to the other side of the room. <laughs> you know, and it's like oh, that, that can't have been fun for her. You know, we have a few minutes left. What 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 is uh what else is coming up? Are you writing and working on anything new right now? You just had this book. I mean, how often do you write? Is it just an idea will hit you and you say I'm going to write it, or do you sit there and put a timetable going? I need a book out. Nah, I'm not, you know, I wish I were that calculated. I just write all the time, you know. Uh, I, I don't have, right now, uh, I'm contracted to do a couple things, uh, but mostly I'm just starting another novel, you know. Uh, Larry Charles and I are working on adapting uh, Painkillers, which was a, it sounds insane, but it was a, a comic novel involving Joseph Mengele, which oddly enough, studios have not been jumping on. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't figure it out. <laughs> Uh, so there's that going on, and uh, I'm starting another book. What's the book going to be about? Do you know? I uh, never talk about that. I also have a column uh, in this rumpus.net, uh, which is a great sort of alterna literary hipster, in the good sense, website called OG Dad, which is like, you know, old guy dad, which is about uh, the joys of being an old time parent with a very young baby. And that's rumpus.net. Rumpus, yes. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, you like it. A lot of great writers it's and good. musicians. Okay, cool. So I want to thank you for coming over. So we have a few more minutes, and it's uh, it was good to get. It was actually good to get me get to meet you. I mean, it's, it's something. Oh, it's great I to always, meet you. You were a comic for a long time, right? I was a comic from '88 to '95, and then I just got out of it. Crazy ex wife. Were, were you on TV a lot, or were you touring no, a lot? I, I used to be up on down the East Coast a lot. I was always on the road, and uh, I do it occasionally now. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll sit there. I'm doing some things with that guy, Rich Scheidner, who's been right. I know Rich Scheidner. Me sure. and Rich are doing yeah. gigs together. He's just another South Jersey guy. So we're doing some gigs together coming up, and uh, I just do it for fun now. You know, I used to do it, and it's just it's different. L.A., as I tell people, L.A., it's like, you know, when I'd go back east to see my girlfriend, I would get booked. Do You do a 30-minute set here. It's like, oh, can you drive this far and do seven yeah, minutes? Yeah, and you're yeah. like, yeah, you know. And I'm actually writing. I'm working on a one-man show great. about dealing with my uh, heart problem. And oh, all, that's going to be great. All my crazy trips to the hospital from, I've had like six concussions in my life. Well, you but, know, the great thing about being an artist or a comic or a writer as opposed to being an accountant right. is when you go through that shit, and you're an accountant, what do you do with it? Right. But for us, it's material. Yeah, and it, it is true. It's was, some weird gift, as yeah, Ziggy Pop would say. As I said, one of the weirdest things is when I was in the hospital, I didn't take them serious until the point that they said, well, you know, your heart has some damage. We have to put you in medicine. Then every red light goes up going, yes. oh, oh, my God, wait, yes. what? I'm, I'm, I'm 49 years old. What the hell? Oh, my God, but yeah. then I'm like, then you sit there and you make your choices. And, I, you know, like, you have to. It's like me. You have to. I used to smoke cigarettes when I walked out of the hospital. Never had said, it was a year and a half ago. So That's now, a hard kick. I, I found kicking cigarettes harder than kicking heroin. I just walked out and never had one again. I said, you know what? You didn't go, well, I guess with that urgency, you probably yeah. didn't suffer and that. And caffeine, yeah. you know, because I have AFib. I said, I don't, you know, I don't need caffeine. Yeah. I love well, iced tea, but, you know, you, I can make, de- I, brought, I brought an iced tea maker, so I can make decaf iced tea. Well, you're living on the edge. I'm living on the edge. I'm crazy. <laughs> give everyone your info uh, where they can tweet, give you Twitter address and all that stuff. My so Twitter can- address is some Jerry Stahl. And uh, I have a website, jerrystall.co, C-O, because jerrystall.com got uh, cyber-squatted by a Canadian porn site, so you don't want to go there. Yeah, exactly. It's Canadian porn, really. Yeah, <laughs> it's, they only give 80%. So. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's so you, you can get in touch with you. Now, do you tweet a yeah. lot? Uh, I started tweeting. Uh, Marin urged me. My friend he's, Mark got huge, Marin, he's got a huge he's following. huge, and he said, man, you have got to tweet. So I started tweeting. You know, got a nice chunk of followers, and uh, I guess I'll keep that going. Good. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. And uh, get the book. Pleasure was all mine. Happy Mutant Babies. 
Happy mutant baby pills. Right. Let's, let's get this straight. I, I, you know, I, I, I lose my mind. It's, it's the heart disease. And uh, anyway, I want to thank you. Also, people, you can follow me at Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Also, email me, Cooper at Indy 100. Also, if you want to hear past episodes, I have about 210 episodes up on coopertalk.net. You can go to iTunes. You can go to Stitcher, type in Cooper Talk, one word. Or if you want to listen on your cell phone, you can go to the Google Play Store. If you have an Android, type in Cooper Talk. My app comes up. Or just type on your iPhone, coopertalk.podbean forward slash mobile forward slash, and you can get me there. Uh, no big comedy shows coming up. I want you all to have a wonderful holiday. Once again, follow me at Twitter at Cooper Talk. Check out the past episodes. Keep listening. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only a hip of my guests. And don't forget, follow at Real the Real Jerry Stall. Right? Real Jerry Stall? Some Jerry Stall. Some Jerry Stall. Some Jerry Stall. Right, you guys have a great week.